Lord, we um, rejoice to be here today among your people. Thank you for um, your wisdom and your goodness to us and um, teaching us to set aside one day of the week, particularly to gather together and to worship you, to hear from your word. And so we pray that you would speak. Um, We pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, uh, to see wonderful things in your word. And so teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's a handout as usual. If you don't have one, raise your hand and Timothy will get one to you. We are now um, in week five of this study of the book of Job and we're nearing the end of this large middle section of the book, which is the dialogue. This dialogue that's been happening, exchanging between Job and his three friends. But now we realize here in these chapters, chapter 32 through 37, there's actually a fourth man, a man named Elihu, a fourth friend that hasn't yet said anything, but now it's his turn. And it's worth mentioning just briefly before we get into the text um, that Elihu himself, the man, and the contribution that he makes in these chapters... um, Commentators and Bible scholars are kind of all over the map regarding how they evaluate Elihu, both in his person and in what he contributes to the argument of the book. On the one hand, you have some that would say something like this. Um, In fact, this is a quote, I forget the person's name that I read, but his contention was that everyone loathes Elihu. Now, I think that's an overstatement. I don't loathe Elihu. Some of you might, but I doubt all of you would. Um, Some people say that Elihu's contribution is really no better than the other friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They say that really Elihu doesn't really bring anything new necessarily, anything particularly helpful. On the other extreme, you have some scholars and, and pastors and teachers who would say that Elihu's contribution is in fact one of the most important things we have in the book. Calvin was among those that felt that what Elihu says is perhaps a key to understanding the entire book. He has very high praise for Elihu's contribution. But then in between those two extremes is, of course, a vast middle ground of people that are really not sure how to evaluate Elihu. And I think I'm kind of in that group. One day I'm reading him and I'm thinking, this is pretty good. Another day I'm reading him and I'm thinking, oh, that really was not very good. Derek Thomas simply evaluates Elihu by saying that Elihu begins well but ends badly. And I can see why he says that. Sometimes I've thought the opposite, that he began pretty badly but then he ended fairly well. So we have different ways of looking at what Elihu brings to the book. Um, But in any event... Um, wherever we might fall on that spectrum, let's, uh, let's dive in. So Job chapter 32. If you haven't turned there, turn there, please. Job chapter 32, and I'll read the first five verses. Then these three men ceased answering Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned. Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends, because they had found no answer, 
and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So what stands out to you the most? Elihu is an angry man. And what is he angry about? Well, four times in five verses, the narrator tells us that Elihu's anger is burning. First of all, he's angry at Job. Verse 2, it says, his anger burns against Job um, because Job has justified himself before God. And of course, Elihu's assessment of this is correct. Throughout this entire dialogue, Job has been making the case that he is in the right. Making the case that he is in the right, and in fact, God is in the wrong. That is what Job has been doing, and this makes Elihu angry. Also, Elihu is angry at Job's three friends. He's angry that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, first of all, have not been able to give an answer to Job's situation. He's also angry that these three friends have actually condemned Job. And again, Elihu is correct in this. These three previous friends have not been able to answer Job's situation. And as we've seen, they have condemned Job. Because the only explanation that those three friends had for what's happening to Job, the way that Job is suffering, the only explanation they have is that Job has been sinning greatly in order to be suffering greatly. And this position angers Elihu. Which, spoiler alert, it's kind of ironic that this makes Elihu angry, given what Elihu will say here in a couple of chapters. But before we go any further, let's just pause and assess. So, um, we should remember that throughout the entire dialogue that we've seen, Job is still this poor, suffering soul. He's lost his prosperity, he's lost his children, his health is failing. He's been plagued with this chronic disease, numerous symptoms that are described. When his three friends found him in chapter uh, 2, he was sitting on the ash heap, scraping his boils with a broken piece of pottery. This is still who Job is throughout this dialogue. Job feels that God is his enemy, and his friends now have condemned him. So one might imagine that Job is really hanging on by a thread here. But now we find that there's this man who's very angry, and he wants to speak to Job. Now, what do you think is going to happen? We might just want to kind of step back and say, it would have been nice for us to hear that it was Elihu's compassion that motivated him to speak. We might rather have known that Elihu's great empathy for Job's situation was compelling him to speak. But no, it appears that Elihu's anger is compelling him to speak. And so we might kind of just think about our own situation. And do we have occasion to counsel someone, give advice to someone who's hurting? If we're angry, if we're angry at them, is that really the right time to speak to them? Just something to think about. So how is this going to play out? Verses 6 through 10. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, spoke out and said, 
I am young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise and the elders, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me. I too will tell what I think. So we might actually be a bit surprised and encouraged to see that even though Elihu is angry, and we also realize he's young, at least at this point, he's being courteous. He's being polite. Because he says that as a young man, he's been holding his tongue this entire time, letting the older men speak. But then he does say, well, it could be that you old men don't really know what you're talking about. That's effectively what he's saying. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. This is what Elihu is saying. Now, I don't know how old he is. I don't know how old Job and the other three friends are. But just kind of get the picture in your mind. There have been these older kind of community elders discussing this thing for a long time. And then this younger guy comes in and says, y'all don't know what you're talking about. It kind of makes me kind of cringe. Perhaps we could say, if we want to read it this way, not only is Elihu angry, he also could be seen as arrogant. Pompous, perhaps. Self-important. Let's pick up two more verses, 11 and 12. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. Now again, he's right. As pompous as he might sound, he is correct that these three friends have not answered Job. And then finally, we'll look at verses 17 through 20 which is kind of a comical picture to me as Elihu describes how compelled he is to speak. Verse 17, I too will answer my share. I also will tell my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins that is about to burst. Let me speak that I might get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. I think it's funny to kind of imagine this man that his belly is so full of words it's about to burst. He can't contain himself. But notice he's yet to really say anything to Job. Nothing of substance. He's been talking but not really saying anything to Job. It takes him down into chapter 33, verse 8, before he really begins to address Job's situation. So look there. 33, verses 8 through 12. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. I am pure, without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man." So Elihu begins to actually address what Job is saying, and he's actually quoting back to Job something that Elihu believes Job has said. In verse 9, there's a little 
quotation marks. I've heard the sound of your words, and here's what Elihu says, Job is saying, verse 9, I am pure, without transgression, I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. Now, as we know, Job has been maintaining his innocence throughout this entire dialogue. But I think Elihu is actually saying more than what Job has really been saying. He's saying that, Eli, uh, that Job is claiming more than just he's generally innocent. I think, based on what I've, I've read, scholars say that Elihu is suggesting that Job is claiming moral perfection here, which we know has not been what Job has been doing. Job has not been claiming moral perfection. So then we can ask the question, well, is Elihu really being fair to Job? If now that he begins to address what Job is saying, I think he's really kind of misquoting him and not really addressing what Job's argument has been. Now that said, I think verse 10 and 11, he's much closer to the mark because I think these are arguments that Job has been making. Behold, he, that is God, verse 10, invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all of my paths. Job has effectively been saying that Job believes God is his enemy. We've seen that in previous weeks. And so Elihu is right that this is Job's perspective. And then the conclusion that Elihu has in verse 12 You are not right in this, for God is greater than man. So I think Elihu is saying two things. Job, you're not right in that you're perfect, although Job hasn't said that. But Job, you're not right that God is your enemy. So this is Elihu's overall position to what Job has been saying. That Job is not correct in what he's been saying. And we're not surprised by this. But what does Elihu think Job should do? If this is what Elihu believes about Job's um, complaint, fair enough. Elihu thinks he's wrong. So what then should Job do? Let's read verses 13 through 22. Why then do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction that it may turn aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones, which are not seen, stick out. Then his soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. Now, here's a moment where I think Elihu is doing fairly well because he is bringing something new to the discussion. He's suggesting to Job, um, Job's position, of course, and the way he's been lamenting throughout the dialogue is that Job feels abandoned by God. 
Job feels that God is his enemy. Job feels that God is not responding to his cry. As we saw last week, Job is trying to do everything he can to get God to respond to him because Job wants to be vindicated. Job believes that God is not answering him. But Elihu says, actually, God might not be being silent after all. He's saying, Job, God does speak. He might be speaking to you even now in your suffering. You might just be missing it. He suggests that God is speaking in at least two ways. First of all, verses 14 through 18, he says that God speaks in dreams. In a dream, a vision of the night when sound sleep falls on men. Verse 16, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. So Elihu suggests that God could speak to Job in a dream. And what's the purpose of this? Why would God speak to someone in a dream? Verse 17, that it may turn aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. So the goal of what God might communicate in a dream would be to turn them from their sin. It would be redemptive in nature. Now, this is not the first time that dreams have been mentioned in the book. Way back in chapter 4, Eliphaz suggested that he had received the direct vision from God. Throughout the dialogue, Job has actually complained of nightmares. This is not the first time that dreams have occurred in the book, but this is the first time that anyone suggested that God might actually be attempting to communicate something to Job in a dream. Now, I think Elihu is correct in the context of the book of Job. We realize in the Old Testament it was fairly common, in fact, for God to speak to people in dreams. There's nothing illegitimate about it in the context of Job, the day in which they lived. I think this comports perfectly well with Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, in many ways and many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Dreams at this time would have been one of those ways that God spoke to people. Now, of course, if we keep reading in, that, in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, it said, but in these final days, God has spoken to us in his son, in these last days. So understand, when we're talking about God speaking in dreams, we think the scripture is pretty clear that this is not the way that God speaks today. But in Job's time, I think it's okay for us to explore this for a moment. Because really, if you think about it, how was it that Job and his friends knew anything about God? They were not Israelites. They were alive in the time or even before the time of Abraham. They never had a written anything, no Bible at all. And they had a pretty well-developed theology and anthropology. Now, they weren't right about everything, but how do they know what they knew about God? Well, it had to be revealed to them somehow directly revealed to them somehow. And so Elihu reminds Job that God speaks, that he speaks through dreams. That's not all. Verses 19 through 22, Elihu says that God also speaks through suffering. He tells Job that God speaks through suffering. Verse 19, man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint 
in his bones. Now, this, I think, can also be applicable to us. I think God does speak through affliction. Not in the way that we hear God's voice, not in the way that he's giving us direct revelation, but I think that we probably experience this ourselves. And it's been well noted, I think, throughout the history of the church that we can learn from our afflictions. We can learn something in our suffering. In this way, God, I think, communicates in people's suffering. And this is, again, new territory here for us in this uh, study of the book of Job. Job's other friends have never suggested that Job's suffering might have an educative effect. Their point of view was that his suffering was always retributive in nature. It was simply God being just. Job is getting what he deserves. All about retribution. And interestingly, Job also seemed to be fixated on retribution, fixated on punishment. Because the entire time he's been saying that, yes, God is punishing me only unjustly. I don't deserve what's happening to me. Being punished for sins I didn't commit. So I think Elihu suggests here, Job, it might not be punishment, but it could be discipline. This chastening he describes in verse 19. And is there a difference between punishment and discipline for sin? Well, for the Christian, there's a world of difference. For Job, there would have been a world of difference. As I said, punishment is always retributive in nature. It has justice in mind. Let's be clear, if you're a Christian, you can never, will never be punished for your sin. All of the wrath that we rightly deserve for our sin has been fully endured and paid for by our mediator and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of my favorite lyrics from Top Lady says, Payment for sin God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. This is simply saying that if Jesus has suffered and died for you, and he has, and if he has received you as his child by grace through repentance and faith, you will never be punished for your sin. Jesus has endured that punishment for you. Now, on the other hand, discipline is different. Discipline is not retributive. It's, what is it? It's redemptive. It has a different purpose in mind. It has correction or restoration in mind. And I think Elihu is saying that if men would hear the way that God is speaking to them in their affliction, they would see that this discipline is meant to be redemptive. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says that if men would see this, they would almost rejoice Verse 27, he will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right. It is not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. I think this is the point of this kind of discipline, this kind of communication that God might have for someone who is suffering to bring them back into the light, as it were, to redeem them. So even in Elihu's youth, he's brought something new to the discussion. 
and he's actually going to return to this in a couple of chapters, so we'll say more about it in a few moments. Let's look at a bit of chapter 34, um, verse 1 through 9 of chapter 34. Then Elihu continued and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and listen to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose for ourselves what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is uncurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up derision like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said that profits a man nothing when he is pleased with God. Well, if it seemed that Elihu was doing all right in chapter 33, it appears that he's kind of taking a turn here. His tone has changed because it sounds like he is returning to that well-worn ground of retribution, describing Job in in verse 7 as a man who drinks up derision like water, who goes in company with workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. He's returning to retribution. I don't know why, but he is. And so where does that lead him to go next? Let's keep reading, starting in verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work and makes them find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth and who has laid on him the whole world? If he should determine to do so, If he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. But if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Shall one who hates justice rule? And will you condemn a righteous, mighty one who says to a king, worthless one, to nobles, wicked ones, who shows no partiality to princes nor regards the rich above the poor for their... They are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, and at midnight people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away without a hand. So Job is going back over the idea of retribution. What is he saying? I think three things he's saying. God pays a man according to his work. He says that in verse 11. I think that's just another way of saying you reap what you sow. You give what you deserve. Secondly, God will not act wickedly. And also, God will not pervert justice. And of course, that's true. That's wonderfully true. But that's what Job has been claiming, that God is not being just. And so Elihu is staunchly defending God's justice, which is a good thing to do. By implication, he's saying that God is therefore dealing justly with Job which also means that, Job, you're getting what you deserve. He asked an ironic kind of rhetorical question in verse 17. Let me read that again. Shall one who hates justice rule? 
And will you condemn a righteous, mighty one? I think in other words, he's saying, Job, are you suggesting that God hates justice? If he did, then could he even rule the world? I think that's a good question. Would, he, would it even be possible for someone that hated justice to rule? Well, yes, I think it would be possible, but we should all be afraid of what it would be like to live under his rule, right? If there was a ruler or king who hated justice, or a ruler or king who was not righteous. Really, Elihu is sounding like some of the psalmists. This, the psalmist would say repeatedly that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's rule. That's, of course, true. Elihu is saying that the right administration of justice is a requirement for someone to rule. And so he's hearing what Job is saying, and he's making the um, conclusion in his mind that, Job, you're effectively saying that God must hate justice, and therefore God is not qualified to rule. We can understand, perhaps, why Elihu is angry. But then look at the end of this chapter to see where Elihu concludes, verses 35 through 37. Elihu says, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit, because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Now, for a man who thought that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar didn't know what they were talking about, he sounds an awful lot like them here. Pretty much sounds exactly like them. Saying that Job ought to be tried to the limit. Perhaps suggesting that Job has not yet been tried to the limit. Perhaps there is yet more trial that Job should undergo. I find this disappointing that this is Elihu's conclusion. But at the same time, in chapter 35, he brings something else new to the discussion. So just when we're down on Elihu, he'll bring us something else. Chapter 35, verses 1 through 8. Then Elihu continued and said, Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. Now, verses 6 and 7 here pose some intriguing questions, I think. By asking these questions, Elihu is saying to Job that God is neither harmed by your sinfulness, but neither is God benefited by your righteousness. Think about that for a moment. That God is not harmed by your sinfulness, nor is God benefited by your righteousness. Now, just 
think for a moment. We shouldn't think that what Elihu is saying is contradicting or negating what we know elsewhere in Scripture, that um, God is pleased when we obey, or that the Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin. But Elihu is looking at this more broadly, thinking about God's person, his being. What harm does our sin bring to God? What do we accomplish against him as if God was our opponent? Nothing. What, what profit does our righteousness bring to God? What does he receive from us as if we were adding anything to him? Nothing, right? Now, if you think these are throwaway philosophical questions... Remember that Paul effectively asked this exact same question, Romans 11.35. And he might have actually been quoting Elihu. Who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him? That's the question Paul asks. It's effectively the same question Elihu is asking. And I find it interesting that this line of thinking, that I think Elihu might be actually saying more than he realizes. I think in what Elihu is saying, he's actually overturning this simplistic doctrine of retribution. Let's think about that for a moment. Think about the logic of retribution. Um, we've seen this before. This is not new to us. This is the same thing that Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad were saying. Their simplistic kind of black and white retribution was that you live a pious life and you're prosperous. You live a wicked life and you suffer. That is basically how they understand the world. Therefore, their counsel to Job had always been, Job, return to God, repent from your sin, return to your piety, and you'll get your prosperity back. That is the way they understand retribution. Almost as if that if Job would give his piety to God as a gift, then God would give prosperity back to Job as a gift. But that logic fails. Because elsewhere in Scripture, think about maybe Acts 17, Paul speaking on Mars Hill, saying God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So what is Elihu trying to accomplish here? Why is he pointing this out? I think that Elihu is trying to tell Job that God is not going to be swayed by your bitter lamentations. Even in your piety, you cannot compel God to hear your cry. You cannot put God under any obligation to vindicate you. Because, Job, you don't have any leverage with God. Your sin doesn't harm him. Your righteousness doesn't benefit him. You can't obligate God to do anything. I think that's what Elihu is trying to tell Job. But I think it's also undercutting the simplistic doctrine of retribution because ultimately that's about inputs and outputs. You do this, God will do this. But Elihu is correct here. We can't obligate God to do anything. God doesn't owe us anything. For who has ever given to him that it might be paid back to him? Hold this in our mind, kind of in this context of Elihu speaking to Job, but then think about the larger context of Scripture because this at least raised a question in my mind, maybe not in yours, I don't know. Um, 
But what do we make of the repeated promises of God that if we would do this, then He'll bless us? If we would disobey Him, well, then there will be curses attached to that. What do we make of that sort of thing that kind of sounds like inputs and outputs, that we do this and God does this? God makes promises like this throughout the entire Bible, right? So how do we make sense of this? Well, I think the difference is that while we cannot obligate God to do anything, God has obligated himself to us. There's a world of difference there. I think that's a different story. Because when you look at the promises that God has made to his people through Scripture, it's always based on what he has done and what he's doing. Think about whether it's the covenant with Abraham or David or Moses, the new covenant in Christ. All of those blessings that we would receive are entirely brought about by what God has done, not what we have done. Now, of course, we have responsibilities as covenant keepers. The first responsibility we have as people of the new covenant is to repent and believe the gospel. And beyond that, as the Spirit writes the law on our hearts, we have an obligation to obey by God's grace. But whatever blessing, whatever prosperity, and I realize that's a word we're afraid to use, but whatever prosperity that we might receive from God as a result of our obedience, understand that that's entirely a gift of His grace to us, not because we've added to Him or obligated Him to do anything for us. This is how I think that Elihu is saying more than he realizes. I think that we can't help but see God's grace as magnified when we realize that even our goodness, our good deeds, they don't add anything to God. And yet He freely and freely and freely gives and gives and gives to us because of who He is, because He's obligated Himself to His people. What's the real time? Okay. In verse 8, just very briefly, Elihu makes the point, as, he, as he's just said, that your righteousness and your wickedness don't affect God. He says, well, your righteousness and your wickedness do affect other people. Your wickedness is for a, a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. So certainly we know our wickedness can harm others, and our piety can benefit others. Let's look at chapter 36. Um, let's start in verse 6 of chapter 36, and we'll go through verse 12. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives justice to the afflicted. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in feather, not feathers, fetters, and are caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they have magnified themselves. And he opens their ear to instruction and commands that they return from evil. If they hear and serve him, they shall end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. 
But if they do not hear, they shall perish by the sword, for they shall all die without knowledge. So Elihu returns to two things here, things he's already spoken about. He returns to retribution, verse 6. He doesn't keep the wicked alive, but he gives justice to the afflicted. But he returns to something I think more important. He returns to this idea of communication, that God communicates through affliction. Verse 8. If they are bound in fetters, a fetter is something that, you know, binds you, right? If they are bound in fetters and are caught in the cords of affliction, he is describing someone that's suffering. And what's the point of this? Verse 10, he, God, opens their ear to instruction and commands that they return from evil. Verse 16, which we didn't read, also talks about, actually, maybe not verse 16. In any event, he opens their ear to instruction and the commands that they should return from evil. So Elihu is again describing the fact that God might bind someone, catch someone in affliction, in order to communicate to them. And how does this happen? Well, I think the way he is describing this in verse 8 is this is something that's happening from outside of themselves, happening to them. They are being bound. They are being caught. We should see that God is the one ultimately responsible for doing this. We've seen this previously in the book. We know that God uses means to accomplish his purposes, but ultimately, God is the first cause God is always ultimately responsible. He is the one that binds men in affliction. And who are the they? Who are these that are bound in fetters or caught in cords? Well, I think he's referring to verse 7. Talking about the righteous, in fact. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he has seated them forever and they are exalted. So Elihu is suggesting that God might bind or catch people in affliction, even the righteous, kings that are exalted. He's not talking about the wicked here. He's not talking about the wicked being afflicted. He's talking about the godly being afflicted. And again, why would God do this? Why would God bind or catch someone in affliction? I think I've already said it, to open their ear to instruction, to reveal their sin to them, to get them to return from something they're doing wrong. But I think there's something more than that. Because if, if Elihu is not talking about wicked people, the godless, if he's talking about generally godly people, what is it that God wants to communicate to them if he binds or catches them in affliction. Well, just think about the different ways that this could happen. The different affliction that any of us might experience. It could be like Job, you've lost something dear to you. He's lost many things. He's lost his health, a chronic disease, the loss of a loved one, 
There could be lots of forms that this pain or affliction takes. But I think Elihu is saying that whatever it is, God is speaking to you in that. You can learn from that. And it might not have anything to do with sin in your life. It might not. I think this is the closest that any of Job's friends ever get to actually addressing the issue of suffering innocently. That is what Job has been claiming the entire time. Now, he doesn't really dwell on it. He kind of maybe just touches the edges. But I think Elihu is saying that even the righteous, even the godly may be caught in affliction, something that God is doing in their life. He may be wanting to open their ear to instruction. So what, do they want to, what does God want to communicate? What is it that God wants to communicate to someone who is generally godly if they're afflicted, if it's not about their sin necessarily? Well, it could be preventative in nature. God could have a purpose to keep you from sinning in some way in the future. It could simply be that God wants to enlarge your thoughts about God, to enlarge your worship of God. When God finally speaks to Job in chapter 38, as we'll see next week, I think Job will realize that he falls in the category of those people that Luther talked about, that their thoughts of God were too small. Maybe God binds or catches people in affliction simply to enlarge their thoughts of who God is or to better understand who God is. It could be that God simply wants to increase your trust in Him or to increase your delight in Him. This might be why God catches the righteous, binds them in affliction. If we were to take the next cognitive leap, which Elihu doesn't really do, but I think we should, it could be that God catches someone in affliction but has nothing to do with them. It might have to do with somebody else entirely. We briefly thought about the example of the man born blind in John chapter 9 some weeks ago. Let's think about it again. We know the story. Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving the temple They encounter this man who was blind from birth. He had never seen a sunset. He had never seen a flower bloom. He had never seen his mother's face. And the question the disciples asked Jesus was, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Now, underlying that question is the doctrine of retribution. Because they see a man that's born blind... And the only thing they can think of, well, somebody has sinned in order for this man to be this way. We know that Jesus' response was, well, it wasn't anything about retribution. Actually, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Now, what do we make of that? Well, understanding that Jesus did heal the man. He gave the man his sight. So that's a pretty big work of God that people could see. But it, was it just for that man's benefit? I mean, it was. He could see now. But really, Jesus said that the, so that these works of God could be displayed in him so that others would see what God has done in his life. 
And I think it's fascinating that this man had been living his entire life in the dark, never knowing why it was that he was in the dark. It was not for him. It was actually for us. Anyone that reads John chapter 9, it was for their benefit to see that God has done a mighty, wonderful thing in this man's life. So his suffering, his affliction had nothing to do with him. It actually had to do with others. Countless numbers of people throughout the ages who have read John chapter 9. God intended to communicate something in that man's suffering. But it had nothing to do with him. Turn the page to chapter 37. Where does Elihu conclude? Well, his speech is almost over, and he concludes looking at the natural order of the world, which again is something we've seen already in the book. Specifically, he looks at meteorology. He looks at a thunderstorm. He describes God's glory displayed in a thunderstorm. Of course, last week we had mining, geology. This week we have meteorology, Next week, when God speaks, we'll have zoology. So many science lessons in the book of Job. Um, I'm trying to decide if I can read the whole chapter. I think I will. Let's just read chapter 37. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose, and is lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain, he says, be strong. He seals the hand of every man, and all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, and out of the north the cold. From the breath of God ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with thick moisture he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of its lightning, and changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction, for his world, or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot, and the land is still because of the south wind. Can you with him spread out the sky strong as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him what I would speak? Or should a man say that he would be swallowed up? And now men do not see the light which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor, Around God is awesome majesty, the Almighty. We cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice 
and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. So, I thought I would just read the whole thing because Elihu finally becomes a poet at the very end. Why is he concluding this way? Well, I think more than anything else, Elihu is preparing Job to hear from God in the next chapter. Because God will take much the same tactic. He'll be putting his wonders of creation on display and asking even more difficult questions of Job. So I think Elihu is preparing the way, pointing up the wonders of nature. But really, at the end of the day, I think uh, the main thing that Elihu is trying to say here, let me just read verse 14, 15, and 16 again. Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? Does Job know this? Of course not. That's the whole point. He doesn't know this. Verse 23, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Again, returning to the theme of justice and righteousness, which are in God. I think Elihu concludes here because he wants to point up the fact that, Job, you can't understand fully the ways of God. You can't understand fully who God is even. Not that he can't understand anything about God. He can't fully understand. And so for all of Job's questions, for all of his turmoil, perhaps this is the lesson that he needs to learn the most. And he'll be learning it even more so in the next couple of chapters. And so here we have Elihu preparing the way for God to speak. Let's pray. Lord, we um, recognize that there are many things um, that we do not understand. Things that happen in our own lives, um, things we find difficult, um, even in the scriptures. Uh, But yet, there's many things we do know. Um, We know uh, your love for us is sure because you have committed yourself obligated yourself to your people, and we praise you as this is seen most clearly in Christ. And so I pray that you would um, exalt him, that the Spirit would exalt him in our worship in the next hour. Um, Teach us um, to sing when we're afflicted, um, that you might bring us from darkness to light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed.